Good morning, Great Oaks. How are you guys all doing today? Dude, I love the energy in here for worship. That was awesome this morning. Great job. Um, if you don't know who I am, my name is Paul. I'm the discipleship pastor here. Uh, and maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but um, this Sunday is Palm Sunday. This is why during our worship time this morning, we had our fourth, fifth, and sixth graders parading around with the palm branches, and now they're out on the stage. Uh, if you've never been to church or if this is a new experience for you, Palm Sunday is the Sunday where millions of Christians across the world will be joining together celebrating the beginning of what we call Holy Week. Holy Week is, is basically the week where we celebrate Jesus' coming to Jerusalem and then going to the cross and then rising again on Easter Sunday. Here at Great Oaks, we are framing this week in the imagery of gone. That is, we're looking at the places Jesus went, the places that he had gone to as he prepares to go to the cross on Friday and then raise from the dead on Sunday. Now, the week begins today on Sunday with what we call Palm Sunday because it's a day in which we remember Jesus entering into Jerusalem. See, Jesus is coming into this major city in the Middle East. It's a city that is the center of the Jewish faith. And he comes into the city in the midst of a great deal of fanfare. And one of the things that we see is that as he comes in the city, the crowds take their cloaks, their, their coats, basically, and lay them on the ground. And then the crowds take palm branches off the trees, and they lay those on the ground as well in front of Jesus as he comes into the city. And the imagery of the event is all about this idea of Jesus coming in as the conquering king who's going to come and save the Jewish people from their oppression. Now, it's an event that's mentioned in all four of the gospel stories. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I felt compelled this morning just to read the story from the book of Matthew. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, it's totally fine. You can follow along. The words will be up on the screen uh, or on the YouVersion Bible app. It's there as well. So Matthew chapter 21, and we're going to be starting in verse 1. And it reads this. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mountain of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, Look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Now just really quick, the, the imagery of the donkey, uh, riding on the donkey, was the image of a, of a conquering military hero coming in now in a time of peace. And that's the significance of the donkey. Verse 6, The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches, on, uh, branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. This is where the phrase Hosanna comes in. Some translations use Hosanna there. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now normally on this Sunday, you would hear a message based on this passage about how Jesus is the king. And he should be the king. He should be the, the ruler of our lives. And in fact, that is who Jesus is. He is the focus of our worship. 
But as I was thinking about this passage this week and thinking about as we go into Holy Week, I wasn't so much thinking about a where question, but more of a question of why. Why do these crowds who on Sunday are bowing down to worship him later decide that he should die? Why do these crowds who yell out, praise God in the highest heaven on Sunday, in their loudest voice start yelling, crucify him on Friday? Because that's what happens on Good Friday. These same crowds worshiping him on Sunday are now wanting him dead on Friday. That's a pretty quick shift. So what happens? Why is there this shift? Well, the shift happens because of where Jesus goes during that week and specifically what Jesus does. See, oftentimes in the church, we focus in on Palm Sunday and we talk about how amazing Palm Sunday is and we worship God. And then we get to Friday, we talk about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for our sins. But I think sometimes we fail to take a look at what happens on Monday through Thursday. What happens in the in-between that makes these crowds shift so suddenly? And if you're like me and you're wondering why they turned on him, if you're wondering why the shift happens, let me tell you why. Did I get your attention? (laughs) Actions like that shake things up a bit. They break the status quo. And they force us to focus on what is happening. And this is the same thing that Jesus does Monday through Thursday. And it's why the crowds turn on him. Because on Monday through Thursday, he does stuff like this. And it gets him crucified. See, here's the bottom line. If you don't remember anything else this morning, I want you to remember this. Jesus goes to Jerusalem to change the status quo. Let me show you what I mean. Go back to our passage back in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 21. Now let's pick it up in verse 12. So this is right after he's come into Jerusalem, right? And all this fanfare. And then we read this. Jesus entered the temple. And he began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, The scriptures declare my temple will be called the house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children of the temple shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. But the leaders were indignant. They asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied. Haven't you ever read the scriptures? For they say, you have taught children and infants to give you praise. Then he returned to Bethany where he stayed overnight. So we read right away, Jesus goes into the temple. And the temple was the place where people were to go to meet with God. And as soon as he gets in there, he begins to overturn the tables of those that are changing money. Pulls out the chairs of people that are selling doves and he drives them out of the temple. Jesus is a little bit ticked. He goes to town. He has a field day at the temple. Now, of course, this doesn't sit very well with the religious leaders of the day. And it's actions like this that begin a cascade of the crowds turning against him. But it still has me asking a question, why? Why was Jesus so ticked off? What is making Jesus so angry? And that he had to go and do all of this. Now, we could say, well, maybe he's for shock value he's doing this, right? He's just pretending, kind of like I did. I'm not really this angry. But I don't think he was pretending. I think Jesus was really angry. 
I think he was really upset about what he saw. And to understand why he's really upset, you got to understand the context of what's happening here. See, what's happening here is this is happening in the time in Jewish history and the faith. It's, it's called the Passover. And it's the time in the Jewish faith where the entire Jewish population would gather together at the temple. And, and they would come to Jerusalem to remember the time where God had brought them out of Egypt. It, it was a major holiday. It was a huge celebration. And if you were Jewish, there were two things that you had to do during the Passover. First, you had to bring an animal to sacrifice for your sins and the sins of your family. You also had to pay what's called a temple tax. You had to pay a, a fee to the, the leaders of the temple. Now, most people as they're coming to Jerusalem for the Passover are coming from hundreds of miles away, long distances. I mean, can you just imagine like carrying a goat on the back of your shoulders, right, for, for a long distance? And so, so it was difficult to do this. In addition, they're coming with money that's coming from other lands. Many of them coming with Roman currency that was covered with idols on it. And so in coming into the temple, you had to change that currency into something that you could use to, to pay the temple tax. So being a good leader, the religious leaders of the day, they, they make it easier for the Jewish people to come and celebrate the Passover by allowing people to exchange currency in the temple courts and to purchase animals to sacrifice there as well. So it's a huge endeavor. There's, it's a huge affair. Just, just so you get a picture of how big this is, Josephus, who is an ancient historian from the first century, he was a Jewish historian, he estimated in one of his writings that during the Passover, 250,000 animals would have been sacrificed. So just imagine that, 250,000 animals in this place that are being sold. Can you just imagine the chaos that's happening there? Now again, I ask the question, but what, what's the big deal? I mean, the, the priests are just making it easier for the Jewish people to come. It's an issue of convenience, right? We're going to make it easy. You can, change, you can buy an animal here, you can change money. It's an easy way for people to come and to worship, they had to do this. They had to sacrifice an animal. They had to pay the temple tax. Why is Jesus so upset? Why is he going all ravage Jesus in this scene right here, right? Well, he explains in verse 13. In verse 13, he says, The scriptures declare, My temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Other translations will say a den of robbers. When he uses that line, my temple will be called the house of prayer and a den of thieves, he's actually quoting two Old Testament passages. The first one is found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 56. Starting in verse 6, it says, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who will fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And then in the Jeremiah passage, chapter 7, verse 4, it says, Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and you deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. If you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. 
Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name and says we're safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. So Jesus quotes these two passages. Notice this in the Isaiah passage, he makes this quotation about foreigners. And he says that I will bring those foreigners to the holy mountain. The holy mountain he's referring to is the temple. And he's going to give to these foreigners a, a place of prayer. And he says, for my house will be a house of prayer for what? For all nations. My temple is to be a place for all nations. And in the Jeremiah passage, what Jeremiah is getting at is that the people are saying, it's our temple, it's our temple, it's our temple. Because we have the temple, we are good. Because we have this holy place, we are God's special chosen people. And what Jeremiah says is, really? Really? Because you have the temple, you're special people? No, it's not because you have the temple. You're special if you would live according to my will. If you would act justly. If you don't oppress the foreigner, if you don't oppress the orphan or the widow, if you don't steal or murder or worship other gods, if you would actually follow me in the things I've told you to do, then you would be my special people. But what you're saying is because we have this temple, because we're just the Jewish people, now we're special. And Jeremiah is saying no. And so Jesus quotes these two things as he turns over the tables. And you have to understand why he quotes these things. And to understand why he quotes these things, you have to understand where the marketplace is happening, where the money changing is happening, where the selling of animals is happening. Here's a picture of the Jewish temple. And in the laws of the Jewish temple, there were places that certain people could go. So for example, the center part where it says the inner courts, that's where the Jewish people could go. And they could worship God and they could give their sacrifices. And then the outside, you have the court of the Gentiles. That's the place the foreigners could go and worship God, where they could connect with God. The marketplace was happening in the court of Gentiles. It wasn't outside the temple gates. It was in the court of Gentiles, where the foreigners, where the, where the people there could go and gather and listen and worship God. I want you to do a favor for me for a second. I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to pray. I don't care what you pray about, whatever's going on in your life. Maybe you want the, you know, the Cubs to win or something. I don't know. Just pray. Just take a moment and connect with God. Keep praying. It's a little hard to focus, isn't it? Now imagine that with 250,000 animals being slaughtered and sold and money being changed over and the chaos that's happening in that scene and now you go and try to connect with God. Go try to pray. Jesus walks into this scene, he sees this and it breaks his heart because God's heart always has been for all the nations to come and to worship him, for everybody to come and have access to God. It breaks his heart so much that he comes in and he changes the status quo. He says, no more, no more. This is ending now. And so he drives out the people. And he does this because what the system they had set up was doing was creating an in crowd and an out crowd. There were now insiders and outsiders. 
If you were Jewish, if you were part of this people group, if you, had, if you looked this way and had this race and all these kind of things, then you could come and meet with God. But if you were someone else, then you didn't have access to God anymore. The system that had been created here was a system of discrimination where now certain people groups had no access to God. That what they had done, it set up barriers for people to come and meet with God. And these were the people that, that God wanted. These were the people that God was saying, I, I want you to come and follow me. But the systems they set up were keeping those people out. You know, we could look at this situation and say, well, praise God that Jesus came and overturned the tables and, and took care of this because now everybody gets to come and access God. I mean, most of us in this room are probably Gentiles at some point, right? Like, so now because of what Jesus did, we get to come and worship God. So thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus, for fixing this situation. Except I'm not so sure we're much different than the Jewish leaders. We still create systems that keep the outsider away. We still do things that keep people that don't look like us or sin like us or have the same money as us from outside the kingdom. Last week, Andy King was here, and he had placed crosses in our pockets to remind us to invite people here for Easter, right? To experience the love of Jesus. But let me ask us a really hard question. Who are the people that you would have a hard time inviting here for worship? Who are the people that you would have a really hard time sitting next to and worshiping God? Let's be honest, we all have those kind of people. There's people that make us uncomfortable. It might be the person who votes differently than you. It might be the person who thinks differently about vaccines. It might be the person with the criminal record. It might be the person who lives on the other side of the river or who has a different skin color than you. It might be the person who roots for the Cubs. I don't know. There might be somebody that you have a hard time worshiping with and connecting with because there's a sense of the other. They're the other. You know one of the saddest things that I think happens in America today? You know where the most the place of the greatest segregation is in America? It's on Sunday mornings. All across this country, people are gathering together. They gather together with people that are like them, that have the same skin color with them, that come in the same, have the same money than them. This is what happens. And I think Jesus is coming into the scene and he's trying to change that status quo. He's saying, this is not how this is supposed to be. This was not my heart. This was not what God's heart was from the beginning. I'll remind you, we've been talking about the last few weeks, our mission is to connect what? Everyone with Jesus, community, and purpose. But the question I have to ask is, do we make that easy? Do we really make it easy for everyone to connect with Jesus? I think sometimes we make it harder. And so Jesus, I think, is trying to challenge the status quo. And he goes on later on to even challenge the status quo more in the book of Matthew. After he throws over the tables, a teacher asks him, or someone comes to say, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, well, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, right? That's the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it, what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus tells stories, okay, then who's your neighbor? Well, it's everyone. It's everyone. There should be no barriers. There should be no walls that keep people away from God. So Jesus comes into the scene and he challenges the status quo in back then and I think he challenges the status quo now. And I think there's some specific ways that he does that. 
See, I don't think it's just that the, the Jewish people started off and say, okay, we're going to create this dis- discrimination system and intentionally be that. I think there was other things that they did that were subtle that created that discrimination. I don't, I don't think they intentionally went, you know what, we're just going to keep the Gentiles out. There might have been some of that. But I think more of it was there were some other things that were happening that ended up leading out that way. And so there's three things I think that Jesus challenges specifically. The first one is this. He challenges their greed. The primary thing that, that Jesus challenges them with is their love of money. See, the system in the temple kept people out because of greed. See, the money changers, the animal sellers were making money on this endeavor. You know, you could bring your animal from home or, you know what, let's make it convenient for you. We're going to make this easy. So tell you what, you can just buy your animal here in the temple for, of course, a small upcharge. The problem was it wasn't a small upcharge. They were, they were stealing money from people left and right. I mean, it was, it was exorbitant type of fees. It's like this. You know, you and I, we go to the movie, you know? Go to the movies on a Saturday night. You could go home, make a bag of popcorn or a bucket of popcorn for about a dollar. You go to the movie theaters, it's 10 bucks. You know, you can go get a 64-ounce soda from Circle K or whatever. You go to the movie theater and it's your firstborn son. It's the same principle. That's what's happening here. They're charging exorbitant fees for this convenience. And it's not, though, just the money changers and the, money seller, or the animal sellers that are making a profit. The religious leaders are also taking a cut. They're making money off of this endeavor. In fact, Josephus, that first century Jewish historian, called the high priest a man who loved to hoard money. And so this marketplace was set up out of greed. But Jesus comes into the scene and he's like, this is not what this is supposed to be. See, his mission is to care for the least of these. Jesus' heart is for the poor. His heart is for the broken, those that don't have it all together. His heart is for the outsider. I mean, in the passage, right, as soon as he turns over the tables, it says that he heals a group of people. Who does he heal? The blind, the lame. Who are the people that are calling out his praises? It's the children, These are three groups of people who have no status in that society. They have nothing to offer. They have nothing to give. And that's Jesus' heart. That's his mission. That's who he's going after. But greed and our love of money can keep people away from that. Keep people away from the heart of God. It can be a barrier that we put in place to make it harder for people to find Jesus. See, we can start hoarding everything that we have instead of giving it away to the poor and the people that Jesus has a heart for. Instead of serving and caring for somebody who has a need, we just turn a blank eye because we think, I need those resources for myself. Or we might buy a really big expensive house that has two-car garage, right? We can pull in into our garages and close the garage door and never talk to our neighbors. Never interact with the person that's next to us. Or we can look our noses down at people who don't live in the right neighborhood or have the right house or drive the right car. We can say things subtly that's like, well, I I would never live in that neighborhood. That's unsafe. And we say things like that and then we make that other person feel less than. That they don't have value and worth because they don't live in the same kind of house that you do. And it comes by the core of a love of money, of, of status, of having the riches 
This was the story of my dad. My dad died in 2014 of lung cancer. And over the years of his life, I I shared the good news of Jesus with him so many times. And every time that I shared the story of Jesus with him, the barrier to his belief was greed. It was the love of money. My dad grew up in a church where the priest did not represent Jesus well. That priest would get up in the pulpit every single week and talk about giving and giving, and you need to give and give to the church, give to the church, and then every year he would drive a brand new Cadillac. And so when I would share Jesus with my dad, my dad would look at me and says, I don't want anyone to tell me what to do with my money. It was that wound of the greed of that priest who made it hard for my dad to accept Jesus. The even sadder part about that, it was my dad's old greed then that kept him away from Jesus as well because what was his response? I don't want anyone to tell me what to do with my money. When he was on his deathbed, I prayed for him. And I prayed that he would accept Jesus as his Lord and Savior. To this day, I'm not 100% sure he ever received Christ. He was so in and out of it in those last stages of life, I don't know if he ever made it. I hope he did. But I can't be sure. But it was the greed that he saw in the church that kept him away from Christ. I think Jesus comes into the scene and he's challenging that in us. He's saying, this is not about a love of money. This is about my kingdom. This is about people that are broken, that need me. And what are you going to do to invite them into this? So he challenges their greed. He also challenges their self-centered leadership. Look at verse 14. In verse 14, it says, The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children of the temple shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. But the leaders were indignant. The word indignant, it basically means they were disgusted by Jesus. Why are they so upset? Well, one, because the children are calling him the Messiah. That's the meaning of the word, the son of David. But they're also indignant because of the people who Jesus attracts. The people that Jesus attracts are not considered to be clean. They're considered less than. The blind, the lame, the children, they're all excluded from the things of God. And the blind, the lame, and the children, they have nothing to offer to the religious leaders. See, the leaders then much like many leaders now, lead not so much for what they can give, but for what they can get. They were leading for power, for prestige, for influence, rather than to care for and to serve those around them. You know, something interesting about the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They are what the Bible calls the Pharisees. We think of Pharisees as a really bad thing because Jesus rips them apart all the time. Right? I mean, Jesus loves everybody except for the Pharisees who he just kind of basically like tells how terrible they are. But in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were not unpopular. The Pharisees were the populist party. They were the politicians who everyone loved. They were in power because the people loved them. You see, they promised the religious people what they wanted to hear. They promised they would protect the people and keep their way of life. They would say, we're going to fight for your values, for your way of doing life. We're going to work really hard to make sure that everyone obeys the laws of God. Later on, Jesus is going to challenge them directly. 
more so than he's even doing in the temple. And I think his challenge of the, relig- of the, the leaders of the day, the politicians of the day, actually begins to turn the crowd away from him. Because he's going after the people that the people loved. Read this in Matthew 23, and I love this passage because this is like savage Jesus right here. We sorrow, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. You blind guides. You strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. They're all about cleaning up the outside, making sure they look good, but on the inside they were corrupt, they were evil, they were self-centered. And they were leading the people not out of a, a, a heart of care and of servanthood, but about uh, of influence and power and strength. What can I get out of that? Can I talk for a moment about these religious leaders, though, and where I think their indignant, indignance really comes from? I think it comes out of fear. I think one of the reasons they react so strongly to Jesus is because they're afraid. In fact, in Mark's gospel, in describing the scene, it says that they're afraid. And they're afraid because Jesus is challenging their authority. And fear can be a powerful motivator for all of us. Fear can cause us to do things and act in ways and move for things and fight for causes that are not in line with what God would have for our lives. And instead of moving to love those around us with the love of Jesus, we end up fighting over stupid things because at the end of the day, we're afraid of losing our influence, our power, and our control. And this is not what Jesus is about. This is not why he came to earth. At the beginning of his ministry, he reads from the the book of Isaiah in Luke chapter 4. And he says, this is my mission. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released. That the blind will see. That the oppressed will be set free. He says, my mission is to care for the downtrodden, the outsider, those that don't have it all together. And now he's in the temple And these are the people that Jesus heals and cares for. And in doing so, he's directly challenging the leadership of the day. He's saying, hey guys, you're missing it. This is not what God's kingdom is supposed to be about. Again, in Matthew chapter 23, just after the temple, he says, the greatest among you must be a servant. And this is alluding back to what he teaches his disciples in chapter 20. Right? You know that the rulers in this world lorded over their people. And officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you might be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must also become your slave. For even the Son of Man cannot be served but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. The heart of the gospel is not about control. It's about servanthood. It's about caring for those and loving those around us. The gospel is not about protecting our interests, our own power, but it's about serving those around us. Anybody uh, movie fans of Hamilton? The musical Hamilton? A couple of you. Some of you haven't seen it. It's one of my favorite musicals. And there's a scene that happens in Hamilton that I just absolutely love. It's towards the end of of the musical, and it's something that happens. It happens in real life with George Washington. He's at the end of his second term, 
And uh, he approaches Hamilton. He says, Hamilton, hey, I need you to do something for me. I need you to write a letter. I'm going to resign. And you get this scene where the, the uh, King George across the, across the pond goes, can he do that? Like, can a leader really resign? Like, that's not supposed to happen. Hamilton looks at George Washington and says, you can't. We need you in authority. We need you to be in power. And George says, no. No. Like, my time is over. Somebody else needs to leave. It's a, it's a heart of servanthood. I'm going to serve something greater than myself. It's not about my power. It's not about my authority. It's not about my influence. I'm serving something greater. And, and just to let you know, at this time, there was not a law that said that George Washington could only serve two terms. He was not compelled by law to do it. He could have served as long as he wanted to. But he gave up his power. He gave up his authority to serve those around us, to round them. You know, in this room, we all lead in different ways. You might lead at work. You might lead at home. You might lead in the community. You might be in an elected office. You might serve in a church leadership position. Let me ask you a question. As you lead, what is your motivation? As you work, what are you trying to accomplish? Are you leading with a heart to care for those that God has entrusted to you? Or are you leading out of fear? Are you leading with a heart to care for those around you or are you fear of of losing control, influence, power? Jesus comes on the scene and he challenges the status quo of self-centered leadership. Lastly, Jesus comes on the throne and he challenges their focus of their worship. See, I think the Jewish people at that time, they had their worship all wrong. And Jesus challenges it. In Matthew 24, we read, Jesus left the temple and was walking, walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And this is where the crowds begin to really turn against him. Because the temple was the center of their worship. It was the thing that made the people special. We have the temple, and now Jesus is saying, I'm going to tear that temple down. This center of your worship, I'm going to get rid of that. But you know what? I'm going to give you something better. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says it this way. All right, Jesus replied. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What they exclaimed? It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. Jesus says, I'm going to tear down this temple, but in three days, I'm going to build it back up. In three days, I'm going to come out of a grave, and something better is going to be in place. Your center of worship is no longer going to be around the temple. It's going to be in me. If I can go back to the beginning of this message, right? Remember when I said that on Sunday the crowds were worshiping him, bowing down to him? The reason they were doing so was because they expected the Messiah to be a military hero. Jesus was supposed to come and vanquish the Roman oppressors. He was supposed to get rid of the Romans who were enslaving the people. He was supposed to get rid of the Romans who were overtaxing the people. Instead, what does Jesus do? He comes on the scene and his wrath is poured out on the thing that they thought made them special. But in the end, it recenters and refocuses their worship. 
He says, in me, you will have something better. I'm challenging the status quo because the status quo is not of God. I have come to bring you life. Yes, I'm going to tear down this temple because it divides the things that that shouldn't be divided. I'm going to get rid of the temple and the greed that's there. And I'm going to get rid of the temple and the leadership that is corrupt. Because in that, these things are not bringing you life, but I'm going to bring you life. You're going to find the focus of worship again, but it's not going to be in a place. It's going to be in me. And this truth changes everything. Because of what Jesus comes to do, we no longer have to live divided from one another. We can love and embrace one another. We no longer have to have barriers that keep people from one another. Jesus says, all are welcome in me. Because of what Jesus does, we no longer have to hoard and be lovers of money. And we don't have to try to earn our way into a place with God. Because Jesus is going to go to that cross. And in that cross, he's going to pay the penalty. He's going to pay the price. He is the perfect offering. And we no longer have to be afraid of losing influence or power because Jesus is going to go to the cross and show us what it means to serve and to surrender and to sacrifice for the good of others. And because of that, he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy for us to bow down and to yell and to scream and tell him that he's worth it. He's worthy of the palm branches because he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what you think about Jesus and all of this, but I do know I think that Jesus wants to challenge all of us with the status quo. He wants to get inside of us and and mess with us a little bit because in him there's something better. And so he's wanting to challenge in us the greed that exists and our love of money. And he wants to challenge the way that we lead. But most importantly, he wants to change and challenge the way that we worship. That we would put all of our heart, all of our focus on him because he is the only one who deserves it. This week, as we prepare for Easter, will we allow Jesus to change the status quo in us? Because in him, there's something so much better. There's something so much better. In him is life. Now's the time in our message where I would normally close us with a word of prayer. And I would just kind of close us to end. But this is the first Sunday of the month. And on the first Sunday of the month here at Great Oaks, we have a prayer moment where we corporately pray together. You know, as I think about this passage, right, Jesus said the temple was supposed to be a place of prayer, a place to go and meet with God. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And so I'm going to give us three things that I think we need to be praying about collectively as a church. And so I'm just going to give us a prompt. I'm going to ask you to pray quietly, and then I'm just going to pray to conclude that section. And the first thing I want us to be praying about is that we as a church family would be a church that tears down the barriers for people to find Jesus. And so would you just take a moment and pray that we would be a church that tears down those barriers so that people can find life into Christ. Jesus, we pray that we would be a place that would tear down barriers and walls that keep people from you. Lord, I pray that we would be a place that is just known for our extravagant love for for the other, for the outsider, for the broken, for the outcast. 
God, and I know that we can pray that collectively and corporately, but I know, God, that all of it starts with us as individuals. And so, Lord, I pray for us as individuals, Lord, for me, for my heart, that you would help me to be a person who doesn't set up those barriers. Help me to get rid of the greed that exists in my heart. Help me to get rid of the self-focused leadership and to leave with a heart of service and help me to focus on you. And I pray that for all of us. God, that we would be people that aren't comfortable with the status quo, but would be radically changed and transformed by who you are. Amen. Next, I want you to be praying for the other churches in our community. Because not only do we desire for us to be a place that tears down barriers and doesn't deal with the status quo, but we pray, that, and that's our hope and prayer for all the churches in our community. And especially this week as we prepare for Good Friday and for Easter, we pray that our churches would be filled with people who are hungry for God. And so would you just take a moment and pray for the churches in Germantown Hills and Metamora and Washington and Peoria. Maybe you even know churches by name. Would you pray for those churches that they would experience just an amazing fruit this week as we approach Easter? God, we thank you, Lord, that you're doing amazing work in and through not just Great Oaks, but all the churches in our community. And Lord, we pray that as these churches prepare for Good Friday and for Easter, Lord, that you would be working and preparing them to just accept and and welcome tons and tons of people who are hungry for you. I pray, Lord, that the gospel message would go forth this weekend. And that countless eternities would be changed and transformed, not just by what's happening here at Great Oaks, but all across our communities. God, that as the gospel message is proclaimed, that people's lives and and destinies would be changed, that life would be better, that our communities would be better. And Lord, I pray for the churches in our community as well, that not only as we tear down the barriers here, but other churches would do the same and find ways to reach those that are hungry and lost and broken and outcasts so that they could find life. Anoint their their leadership, anoint their people to do amazing things for you. In Jesus' name, amen. And then finally, the last thing I want us to pray about is that as we get ready for Easter, that we would make much of Jesus, that he would be the focus and the center of our worship. Would you just take a moment and pray for yourself this week that as you approach Easter, that you would take moments and opportunities to focus in on Jesus, what he's come to do, and the life he wants to bring. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in you is life. And we thank you that 2,000 years ago, you came to this earth to change the status quo. 
to change up what was a broken system, a system of trying to earn our salvation, earn our worth, earn our value. But Jesus, you came to this this earth and you said, you know what, I love you no matter what, no matter your sin, no matter your brokenness, and I'm coming to bring you life. And because of that, we get to worship you and honor you and glorify you. And so we, God, we thank you so much for that amazing gift that you gave to us. And Lord, I pray for us this week as we prepare for Easter that we would make much of you, that you indeed would be the focus of our worship. I, pro- I pray, God, that in the, in, the hearts, in, in the roads of our hearts, that we would lay down palm branches for you and our cloaks for you as we surround you and worship you and give glory to your name. Because you, God, and you, Jesus, are only our only focus of worship. You and you alone are worthy of our worship. We thank you for all that you're doing. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.